Thank you, Pastor Jonathan. Thank you, those who helped us uh, musically. Thank you, those who were setting up, uh, ushers. And a thank you to Nancy McKay, who comes here early every Sunday and sets up communion. <clears throat> so you take that for granted, but she doesn't. And that's why we can. Well, Pastor Jonathan prayed about the, the nation and the aftermath of the election. I just wanted to kind of second that and say that now, we're, now that we're past election day and have a declared winner, although we don't have a concession, I just want to encourage us all to demonstrate to the world how Christians handle both triumph and defeat. Shouldn't be any gloating, there shouldn't be any anger, depending on whether it was your guy or not your guy. But let me read a couple of verses for you to underscore that. In First Peter chapter 4, you don't need to turn that, but you may feel free to. First Peter 4, verses 8 and 9. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. May that be what marks us as Christ's church now and down the road. All right, we've come to the fifth of the seven churches that we're looking at in this series. And I want to I got this idea early in the morning yesterday, so go with me for a little bit. I want to give you a little walking tour of Sardis, but you have to use your imaginations. All right? The platform is Sardis. Sardis was on a high plateau, and if you got too close to the edge, the sides were sheer rock. You wouldn't want your kids being, you know, just hanging over the edge of that. That's why one of the reasons Sardis that thought they were so safe. Um, here's the gymnasium, which is an important feature in Roman culture. It's, it's pretty significant. And over there, you thought that was a piano. That's the synagogue. The Jewish people in Sardis had attained a level of acceptance and influence and the synagogue, if you can picture this, was almost the size of a football field, our football field. The city had between 60 and 100,000 inhabitants, residents. It's one of the, probably the largest of the seven cities that we're going to be looking at in this series. It was prosperous. It was influential. And the Christians managed to be on good terms with everybody and fit right in. Maybe not a good thing. <clears throat> of the letters that we've looked at so far, so far, just I want you to keep a couple of, keep a couple of things in mind. They're all they're all of the letters are to all of the churches. Well, why is that important? We might be able to look at 
one or more of the letters kind of in isolation and say, well, that doesn't apply to us. But in every single letter, we have these words. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So Sardis is for Ephesus, is for Thyatira, is for Pergamum. All the churches were to hear and heed what was in all of the letters. Each letter may have had specific application to that church, but the encouragements and or rebukes were there for all. We've seen that things are not always as they seem. Hence, for example, Ephesus, which had great doctrine, they were commended for rejecting false doctrine, but they had a real problem. They had left their first love. Smyrna, an apparently poor church, was in actuality rich, we find in chapter 2, verse 9. So things are not always as they seem. So it was with Sardis. Sardis, apparently alive, but the judgment of the Lord of the church is dead. Dead. The greeting to Sardis emphasizes that this message is coming from the Lord of the church. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, who are the angels of the churches, These are the words of the one who has all of that. So, as I've already said, in contrast to the other churches we've studied so far in this series, Sardis experienced no opposition from the culture around them, at least none that we're aware of. Their church, the largest of the seven, was believed to be secure, both from outside influences and from those who were right there in Sardis, who might have had Uh, some influence on them. Although the influence coming from the citizens of Sardis uh, was more subtle, and indeed it it had taken its effect. They thought they were safe from invasion. However, what we know from history is that twice in its history, the city had been conquered both times by armies that gained access as a result of a few daring climbers, soldiers who scaled those walls. I kind of think of it as El Capitan, if you know um, Yosemite in those pictures. I don't know if it was that difficult, but they managed to get up the walls, got into the city, opened the gates, voila, they were conquered. It's once in 540-something BC and once in three-something or two-something, just 300 years before this letter is worth. Now, I say just 300. If you go back 300 years from now, the United States wasn't even a country. So it was 300 years, not just 300 years. But it it had the effect of kind of lulling the people to sleep, like, we're safe, we're secure, nobody's going to come and take us. They believed themselves to be secure. They were on friendly terms with a Jewish synagogue, right there. Um, It was large and wealthy, one of the biggest synagogues in the ancient world. 
As a result, one commentator observes, the church in Sardis was not what the unbelieving world would call a dead church. It was a very active church. All kinds of events were taking place. All kinds of committees were meeting to discuss and plan and strategize. The church in Sardis was well organized. Doctrine was sound. Sacraments were celebrated regularly and orderly. Services were well attended. End of that quote from that commentator. And yet, Jesus' evaluation was, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. We can say all we want, but it is the works that reveal the true state of spirituality. Don't get confused. Works don't earn us salvation, but they show the authenticity of our salvation. <clears throat> and the deeds are what the Lord of the church is looking for. It's hard not to make the obvious comparison between Sardis and the church in America today. Persecution is non-existent for all intents and purposes. We can see how the evangelical church has been courted by politicians for the last half century or more. And, truth be told, we've loved it. We've enjoyed the acceptance and apparent security that come with that. And there are high-profile evangelical churches all over the place with huge buildings, budgets, programs, and the appearance of spiritual health. But how much of that is camouflaging spiritual decay, deadness. It isn't to suggest that buildings, budgets, and big programs are all bad, but they may not necessarily be evidence of health any more than being small is evidence of health. He says to the 80 or so watching, looking on. In any event, Christ's diagnosis of Sardis is dead, dead. However, there's hope, <clears throat> for this dead church is, in the next verse, commanded by Christ to wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So Jesus, he who was alive, or who was dead and is now alive, in contrast to the Sardis church, they appeared alive, they were really dead. Jesus said, I'm the one who was dead and I'm now alive. Um, he can breathe new life into even a church like Sardis. They were in the sleep of death, but Jesus is able to waken the dead. His command to wake up, like his command to Lazarus in John 11, carries with it the power to obey. In and of themselves, the church in Sardis would have remained dead. But Christ is the source of resurrection power. What does it mean for the church to strengthen what remains and is about to die? I hear here an echo of how Christ counseled the Ephesian church in chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, repent, and do the works you did at first. In other words, get back to basics. What I picture in my mind is what a physical therapist might do with a patient who has lost the ability to move certain muscles and atrophy has set in. Through use, with assistance at first, those muscles can be strengthened and become useful again. And so it is with spiritual muscles. 
They need to be exercised in order to be useful again. Jesus goes further in his counsel to the church in Sardis, pointing out that what they have done is incomplete. This may mean that they never finished anything they started. One commentator said, content with mediocrity. May, they not, may, may that not be true of us. Or it may mean that their work is not what God requires. Again, a quote from a comment, uh, one of the commentators, not oriented toward the living God and his glory, his kingdom, his purpose. In our busyness, we can easily lose sight of why we are doing what we are doing or lose sight of for whom we are doing what we are doing. Both are very dangerous for the church. Spiritually, one way we regain our muscles is by remembering which we see by remembering which we see here in verse 3. The Lord writes or John writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, remember then what you received and heard. I believe we pay far too little attention to the discipline of remembering. If you're a parent, and I see a lot of parents here, you've heard your kids, your kids say on discovering that they had neglected to do what you had told them to do, they might say, I forgot. As if I forgot is the magic cure for what is really disobedience. I suggest that forgetting is culpable in this context. It doesn't get you off the hook. Think about how much of the Old Testament, especially during the Exodus, was designed to help the people remember remember their God and how he dealt with them. In his farewell song to the people, Moses in Deuteronomy 30, I believe it is, 30, 31, <clears throat> um, sang a song and taught it to the people of Israel. And the purpose of it was so that they would remember the way the Lord dealt with them. And he included these words. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Your elders, and they will tell you. How many of you can remember songs you sang as a child? 50, 60? I won't get past that. But decades ago, something triggers your mind and you can remember every word of that song. Maybe it's a Beatles song or who knows. That wouldn't, you wouldn't have been as a child. But Moses taught the people what God had done for them and he did it using a song. And when they crossed the Jordan and entered the land of Canaan, Joshua obeyed the Lord's command and built a memorial of 12 stones from the river so that when their children would ask them, what are these stones here for? They would be able to repeat for their children what God had done in bringing them safely across the Jordan River. So there are, there are ways of encouraging even faulty memories. And this was, you know, songs, memorials, um, you could make the argument that the Jewish calendar with its multiple feasts and celebrations was a tool for remembering God's faithfulness and his prescribed worship. The Lord has provided for the weakness of our memories primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. 
through the way that we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. It is a remembrance feast. This, do this, he said, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of his sacrificial death on our behalf. So Jesus commands his church to remember what they had received and heard and keep it and repent. In verse 3, it isn't complicated. As the saying goes, it's not rocket science. We can't keep what we don't remember. So we have to make it a point to remember. That's why we gather like this. The, the months in which we were unable to gather in person were hard, just difficult. We all missed that fellowship. But I think one of the things where it really took the toll was we get forgetful. We're not breaking bread together. We're not seeing the same faces. We're not hearing people's stories. God wants us to remember. Thankfully, we're able to gather. We look forward to the day when there will be no restrictions, but who knows? Who knows? And the act, we can't keep what we don't remember, and the act of repentance, which those things go together, remembering and repenting, is a grace given by God to his people to complete the transaction. The act of repentance practiced regularly is a grace given by God. Repentance includes confession, which is agreeing with God about the effects of our sin and turning from sin with the promise that God will enable us to change and he will restore us to fellowship with him. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to say, repentance is not a strong discipline of mine. It's something I do when I think of it, but I don't always think of it. I don't remember. I need to remember. I need to be more regular with that, which is one of the reasons I've appreciated Pete. I was going to say pastor-in-training Pete. Pete, how often he leads us in a prayer of confessing, confessing the things we have left undone and the things that we haven't done, we shouldn't have done, that we did do. That's a great place to start. And as you use that as a kind of a tool, allow God to remind you. Um, read Psalm 51, David's great prayer of confession, uh, if you need extra help. Or go to Psalm 139. The last two verses of that psalm where um, David prays, and now I'm drawing a blank. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's a great way to get your confession and repentance started. Ask God to search you and remind you where you need to do some, some business with him. <clears throat> Beginning in verse three, the second half of verse 3, the Lord tells the Sardian church, I didn't make that up, by the way. A lot of the commentators use that as a way of describing those who are in Sardis. They were Sardians. I don't know. Sounds like something out of Star Wars, doesn't it? So I'm not going to refer to any movies like Jonathan does. I don't, I don't go to movies. That's as close as it's going to come for me. But beginning in the second half of verse 3, the Lord tells the Sardian church, what is at stake here? 
he will come like a thief at an unexpected time. And he will come against the members of the church. This is a fearful prospect. We may be thought of as good church members, respectable in every way, but we may be fooling everyone, ourselves included. Christ isn't fooled, however. The language should remind us of multiple other places in the New Testament, one of which we read this morning during our singing, where the Lord's coming is compared to that of a thief. That Matthew 24 passage, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 5, uh, 2 Peter 3, Revelation 16. We can't take the time to read all of these. But notice in the 1 Thessalonians 2 passage, verses 2 and 3. Let me get that for you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, maybe like the people in Sardis were, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. It's pretty ominous sounding. Along with the warning, though, comes a reassurance from Christ. It goes on, but you, referring to the Thessalonian believers, the church there, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. This may not have applied to those in Sardis who had soiled their garments, quote unquote, but there were those who had not. It was a remnant. It was a small group, apparently, of those who had not soiled their garments. But there were those. As you're hearing this, you may be thinking, well, I have times of doubting the authenticity of my faith. I have times of wondering, am I really a believer? If that's true, and it's, I would suggest it's probably true for everybody here. We listened to an episode of Ask Pastor John yesterday, and uh, I, would, I would encourage you to check that out. It was just from a couple of days ago. It's, I think the title was, um, How Can I Know If I'm Fully Committed? Or full, remember the title? How Can I Know That I'm Fully Committed to Christ? And in that 10-minute episode, he shared his own struggles that he has had. I mean, if a guy like John Piper can go through that sort of thing, the fact that you may have doubts doesn't mean that you're not an authentic Christian. So I would just commend that to you, your hearing. If you want more information on that, you can ask me later. It would be a useful investment of your time. To the question of what this coming like a thief refers to, commentator N.T. Wright has this to say. Quote, will this coming be the final day, the second coming, properly understood? He says, probably not though that too is in view as the ultimate backdrop. Throughout this book, we glimpse other comings which may consist in times of persecution, when Jesus is coming to cleanse and purify his church, or of moments of comfort and restoration. It seems that the coming may well be a time of persecution or simply of internal 
collapse. A church quietly drowning in its own inoffensiveness, unable to believe that its reputation for being alive is no longer deserved. I, I was struck by that phrase, a church quietly drowning in its own inoffensiveness. We need to hold up the mirror for one another and be honest about whether we are simply trying to get along and be inoffensive or whether we are willing to take up the offense of the gospel. Beginning in verse 4, the tone of the letter to Sardis changes from ominous to glorious. The Lord addresses the faithful, those who have not soiled their garments, quote unquote. These aren't perfect Christians, but those whose names are in the book of life. When Jesus says their names will not be blotted out of the book of life, he isn't here threatening believers with a loss of salvation. I grew up in a church where the potential loss of salvation was an ever-present danger, and it was a terrifying way to try to live as a Christian. Rather, he's emphasizing that true believers' names are securely in the book, or as one commentator puts it, the promise, I will not erase his name, contains no inference that the names of the genuine saved might for some reason be erased, but is rather an assurance that they will not. The point is that the names have been in the book of life since the foundation of the world and thus cannot be erased, whereas those about to perish have not had their names thus written. Just as a side note, in one of the resources that I had, it said in some cities in this part of the world in antiquity, if, if you were a citizen of that city, they had a list of all the citizens written in a book. And if you were convicted of a capital offense, they would take your name out of the book before you were executed. That may be part, at least partly what John is referring to here. In any event, your name is in the book of life. It's not being erased. So those who are, whose names are there will walk with Christ in white, the color of purity of the garments worn by the bride, the whiteness that results from being washed in the blood. You see that when we get to, well, we're not going to get to chapter 7, but in Revelation 7, 14, we're told about the washing of uh, our garments in the blood, and somehow the blood doesn't stain them. It cleanses them and makes them pure white. Well, not only will the names of believers never be erased from the book of life, but along with that, we have the additional promise from Christ, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Now, this is in fulfillment of the promise made in Matthew 10, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. So the promise is threefold, threefold in these verses. White garments... Christ will not erase their names from the book of life, and Christ will confess the names of believers to his Father in heaven. That's a wonderful promise. That's a wonderful series of promises. It's, I think we're, we're so comfortable in our Christianity, our cultural Christianity, that the promise of white garments and not having our names erased, erased from the book of life and Christ confessing 
our names before his Father in heaven doesn't maybe carry the weight that it should. One wonders about the extent to which our love affair with this world and even the blessings God has provided to us have kept us from hearing these promises for the glorious truths that they are. To use the well-known illustration from C.S. Lewis, and this is my paraphrase, we are so busy making mud pies in the street that we can't even imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. But the Lord promises not only the glories of the new heaven and new earth, but best of all, he promises himself. We will live with him forever, never exhausting the joys and pleasures of that relationship. Don't get sidetracked by the streets of gold imagery. Don't even get sidetracked, and, and you hear this so commonly, and I'm sure there's a lot of truth in it, but people, I'm looking forward to seeing my grandmother who's already in heaven. I'm looking forward, we're looking forward to seeing Jesus. Seeing Jesus, and that's going to be better than anything. New heaven, new earth, yes, because Jesus is there. Consider the words of Peter in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Not that he might enable us to walk in streets of gold or see all of our relatives who passed away. No, primarily that he might bring us to God. Let that sink in. We, were, we will for all eternity be with Christ, with God. You, you, you can't really wrap your mind around it, but you need to try. You need to try. In the end, the church in Sardis has a solid hope to hang on to, despite their shortcomings. The promise they have from Jesus is amazing, given that they were initially described as dead. They will be brought to God for all of eternity. And so will we. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you would keep us from being so in love with the world that we are unable to savor the glory that is to come when Jesus brings to ultimate culmination what is to be our eternal destiny. Father, forgive us for being preoccupied with lesser things and help us to keep before us at all times the truth that we will be brought to God. Lord, we are excited about that. Perhaps we need to be more excited about that. Perhaps some aren't excited about that at all. Maybe some are here, Lord, who have no assurance that they will be brought to God. 
Lord, would you work in those hearts today and move them to seek you even as we know you are seeking them. Were that not the case, none of us would seek you. So help us, Lord. Help us as we turn now to remember the sacrifice of your Son, the Lord Jesus, on our behalf. And remind us not only of the cost, but of the glorious future that that has purchased for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.